This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the intellectual historian David Wooden about his new book, Power, Pleasure, and Profit, Insatiable Appetites from Machiavelli to Madison. Your book, David, strikes me as more relevant to our current political and cultural circumstance than any other I've read in the last four years. You talk about the iron cage of a fixed idea in which, wittingly or unwittingly, all of us, Republican and Democrat, pro-life and pro-choice, Christian and atheist, find ourselves trapped like so many fish in a net or apes in a zoo. Maybe you can begin with the Declaration of Independence and what is meant by the phrase pursuit of happiness. Right. Well, the pursuit of happiness is a phrase that long before Jefferson uses it has become a commonplace. One of the extraordinary things about the Internet is we can now search millions, thousands and thousands of books published in the 18th century. And you can find literally hundreds of people who use this phrase, the pursuit of, of happiness. So Jeff, Jefferson is just echoing a conventional phrase. And what people mean by the pursuit of happiness is quite straight. You have to look and see how they define the word happiness. And they define the word happiness always as simply having a succession of an, an uninterrupted succession of pleasures. They have virtually no way of conceiving of happiness other than constantly to experience good feelings. Uh, they talk a little bit about things like contentment, but they never try and explain why contentment would be different from sitting in the sun, drinking a glass of wine and constantly having pleasurable experiences. So happiness is for them pleasure. And that goes right back to Hobbes and behind Hobbes, it goes to Lucretius. And uh, Hobbes had transformed moral philosophy by saying, all we do is we pursue pleasure and we flee pain and we make up for ourselves what we regard as pleasure. There's no rule which tells you what you should take pleasure in. Some people take pleasure in eating oysters. Some people uh, find oysters disgusting. It's entirely a matter up to you to say, this gives me pleasure and to set out to get it. And according to Hobbes, in order to get pleasure, we have to acquire power because power provides us with the means to pleasure. So Hobbes creates human beings which are pleasure-seeking machines. Uh, they calculate, but they calculate only in order to maximize pleasure. So... So pleasure becomes a form of cost-benefit analysis. Indeed. It becomes a question of instrumental logic. You say, how do I get as much of this as I can? And, and that's to say you approach the world in the same way that a bus business person approaches making money. And, and running through this whole 17th and 18th century literature is metaphors from account books, bottom lines. People talk about working out whether you've had more pleasure or more pain, uh, whether the bottom line is in favor or not. Uh, people argue that perhaps if there's more pain in the world than there is pleasure, you'd be better off dead and so on. And so they try and argue that God has clearly constructed a universe in which pleasure outweighs pain. And atheists come along and say, well, that doesn't seem to be right. It looks to me as if the pain of a toothache massively outweighs the pleasure of the odd glass of wine sitting in the sunshine. So in that in that way, the assumption is that all that can that all that counts is pleasure and pain 
that you uh, decide whether God exists and whether God is a good God by looking to see how much pleasure and pain there is available to human beings. And human beings make instrumental, rational calculations in the way that uh, business people would make profit calculations in an attempt to maximize pleasure. And this this understanding of the good life or of pleasure and happiness as is is what you call the enlightenment paradigm it's a framework it's a fixed idea that is the result of a cultural and political revolution and over right. an overturning of the uh ideas of the good life as was understood by the Greeks, by the Romans, by everybody prior to roughly the year 1500. That's correct. For the, for the Greeks, uh, there is always, even for the Epicureans who think that pleasure has a great deal to do with the good life, but even for the Epicureans, there is a standard by which you can say whether someone is living the good life or not. Uh, and if they live up to that standard, if they achieve a certain sort of excellence, then you can say that's a person who is uh, a happy person because they have fulfilled their potential. They have realized what it is to be a human being in Greek context, a male human being. But they, so don't, that, they, they don't use the word happy. They, they use the word felicity. Well, yes, um, there's, a shift in, there's a shift in our language between felicity and happiness. But Hobbes, when he talks about this, uses the word felicity, the shift. I don't think the important thing is that replacing the word felicity by the word happiness. The important thing is replacing the notion that there is an absolute standard of, of, of what it is to be excellent by the notion that these things are entirely relative and subjective. And if it pleases you, if it satisfies you, that's all that counts. And no Greek philosopher would have said that. And every philosopher almost after Hobbes is prepared to say something very close to that until you get to Kant, who says, no, no, that can't be right. Uh, there has to be a, a, a standard and tries to, as it were, undo the Enlightenment in this respect. But from Hobbes to Kant, there's a there's a general agreement that uh, pleasure is the, the definition of what humans want and what they pursue. And consequently, all moral activity has to be activity that can be understood by the person engaging in it as a source of personal satisfaction. They have to be able to say, I'm doing this because I enjoy doing it or I get something out of it. In other words, all moral behavior is for the enlightenment, for people thinking within the enlightenment paradigm, fundamentally selfish behavior. And that's very clear and straightforward in Hobbes. It's very clear and straightforward in, in Mandeville. But if you look at someone like David Hume, if you look at someone like Adam Smith, really they're just tinkering around the edges of that assumption. They're not disputing the fundamental claims of that assumption. The way in which all men are created equal, I mean, to look at them, that is clearly not true. But but the understanding of all men being equal is in their desire for pleasure and power and profit. That's right. So that Hobbes is the first person to really try and build a, a moral and political theory around the claim that all people are equal. That's uh, not so much stress in Hobbes' case on the creation because he's bordering on atheism, but fundamental stress on the equality of human beings. Once you'd make uh, pleasure as the only good and pleasure subjective, you can easily say 
all human beings are fundamentally alike. And we are all made up in the same sort of way. Uh, and indeed, you can say men and women are made up in the same sort of way. And people from different cultures and different races are made up in exactly the same sort of way. And you can say there is a fundamental human nature, which is universal. And the old assumption uh, that runs through Greek or Roman philosophy, though not necessarily through Christian thinking, was that you could divide people between men and women and barbarians and civilized people and free people and slaves. All of that disappears once you say that we're all alike, we all pursue pleasure, we all flee pain, and we all choose for ourselves what counts as pleasure and what counts as pain. And at that point, uh, Hobbes talks about honoring uh a, a cook or a, or a kitchen maid, you honor someone by paying them more for what they do. You, you show how much you value what they're doing by how much you pay them. And so he says in times of peace, a judge is honored. And in times of war, a general is honored. And of course, you know, when, when you're hungry, a good cook is honored. There's no difference between the honor we give to a cook and a general and a judge in Hobbes's scheme of things. And their sense of pride in what they've achieved is identical. So that the, the notion that there's a, a social hierarchy in which judges have different goals and objectives and statuses from cooks and bottle washers disappears and, and everybody is engaged in the same thing, which is achieving status because they can trade out status into the pursuit of satisfaction for themselves. That is why Hobbes says that the value or worth of a man is his price. Yes. This is the market metaphor being driven home is to say uh, what we are prepared to pay for something is our measure of what it's worth. And there is no other measure of what it's worth. Now, that's I mean, it's, that's a shocking thing in Hobbes to say there is no other measure. So that, uh, you know, if you're a, a brilliant uh, poet sitting in a garret and no one will pay you for your poetry, then in Hobbes's view, your poetry is worthless. Uh, he's absolutely unprepared to say. You could be doing something valuable and important that no one else will pay you for. And then, it, and there's no way to make a moral distinction between your pleasure and my pleasure. I mean, if my pleasure is uh, to sexually abuse women, that deserves as much respect as um, the pleasure that I would derive from ascetic celibacy. Yes, Hobbes is very clear that one can take pleasure under certain circumstances in giving pain to other people. Um, and in that sense, he's very clear that revenge, for example, or uh, sexual violence can be sources of pleasure. Uh, and as far as Hobbes is concerned, uh, I think one just has to say that in a state of nature, people can do what he says. You know, it's absolutely clear there are no limits on what people are entitled to do in a state of nature. In a state of civil society, then you introduce rules which say you shouldn't do certain things um, and you impose certain sorts of order on people. But you do so in order for prudential reasons. You do so for instrumental reasons. You do so so that the world will run smoothly uh, and so that other people won't uh, fight back against uh, the attacks upon them. You do so to create order. You don't do so out of any sense that there's a moral evil independent of the need for order and for creating the space within which everybody can pursue their own pleasures. So a, an act of benevolence is uh, just like an act of revenge can count as, as, a, as a pleasure, not as a duty. 
an act of that, that, as far as Hobbes is concerned, and, and I spend a lot, of, lot of time in my book arguing this point because it's a contentious point among Hobbes scholars. But Hobbes is very clear that the only reason we have friends is because we hope those friends will help us. Uh, and in that sense, friendships are simply instrumental alliances. To form a friendship is just like uh, buying shares in a company. It's an investment and you hope something will come back to you. And Hobbes thus assumes that no one will run to the assistance of somebody else unless they hope to get something good in return or to be paid for it or whatever. He's incapable of imagining that one could have a generous action. And so he quotes Lucretius. Lucretius says that it's a pleasure to stand on the shore and watch a ship being wrecked at sea because the pleasure you get is to think, thank goodness that's not happening to me. Even if you know the people to whom it's happening. And, in, and Hobbes says this is right. We, we, we take pleasure in seeing people killed in a battle as long as we're safe on the walls of a castle. We don't care what happens to them. What gives us pleasure is the sense that this isn't happening to us. And so Hobbes has no sense that we are capable of, as it were, generously identifying with other people. Once you get through to the end, in, the 18th century, people lay enormous stress on the notion that we can identify with other people through what they call sympathy, and therefore your sufferings can become my sufferings. Hobbes doesn't make that move. And when you might make that move, you make people much more sociable and much more good natured than they are in Hobbes. But at the same time, you don't actually make them um, altruistic. Altruism is a 19th century term. There's no concept of altruism in the 18th century. People are assumed when they're being benevolent and good natured to be uh, looking to get out of it, their own happiness. I do you a favor and I can take pleasure out of the smile on your face. Fine. Hobbes would think that was a bit odd. Hobbes thinks when we, when we laugh, it's always to assert our superiority over others. It's never, he can't imagine that we laugh in order to entertain people and make them, make them happy. But even when I do something to make you happy, I do it because that makes me feel good. I do it for my own good feeling. And that's, you know, Hume is quite clear about something like that. But this line of thinking that the good is identified as power, pleasure, and profit only is, is, is really something new in the world uh, around 1500. And, and you, you explain that, that the fra this framework of an idea, the Hobbesian world is the one in which we are still living, and it is formed by, there are many uh, contributors to, I mean, it, Machiavelli adds an element to this idea, then Hobbes in the 17th century, and then people like Hume and Jeremy Bentham in the 18th century. And the, and the, you, you point out that, that, that two of the most fundamental texts are the American Declaration of Independence and Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, both published in 1776. That's right. I mean, once you get through to Adam Smith, once you get through to the American Revolution, we've entered a non-Hobbesian world in the sense that there are two assumptions that Hobbes doesn't have. One is that people feel sympathy for each other in a way that Hobbes doesn't imagine they do. Uh, and the other is the understanding that people pursuing their selfish interests in a market actually generate benefits for other people because they create the conditions for mutual prosperity. 
what Adam Smith calls the hidden hand of the market. By making myself rich, I actually help you become rich too. And in that sense, uh, where Hobbes assumes that when in, that interests, being selfish interests, always involve conflict, once you get through to the sophisticated market theory of, of Adam Smith, the claim is that selfish interests actually create a concordance of interests out of which everybody can benefit. So in that sense, you have the notion that you can have a, a civilized competitive society. Um, strikingly, the word competition is, is a new word in the 17th century. They don't. It, I, I tried to find other words that perhaps they might have used to convey competition before the 17th century. And it's really hard. They, they didn't have a concept of competition before the 17th century. Hobbes lives in a world that newly thinks of people as competitive. By the time you get to Adam Smith, the understanding is that competitive people can create a mutually beneficial society, but it's still out of selfish behavior. So that once you've got this notion that people inevitably pursue pleasure, power and profit as ways of building, as it were, the opportunity for future pleasures, uh, once you once you create that 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 structure of thought, it carries with it not only a moral philosophy, which says that people have, have to fundamentally be pursuing their own interests. It also carries with it a, a, a theory about politics, which means you have to devise a political system from which people can see their interests as benefiting. It, it brings with it an economic theory, which becomes, in many respects, the economic theory we still have. Uh, so that this enlightenment paradigm creates a moral philosophy, a political philosophy an economic theory, um, all of which have been constructed and fully developed by 1776, so that Bentham, the American Declaration of Independence, and Smith all come together at the same moment in time, representing all the different elements of this Enlightenment paradigm. And, and the trouble with the Enlightenment paradigm is that the notion of pursuit, which is pursuit of something unattainable. In other words, the ancients, the idea of the good life and, and the happiness could be attained it, 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 but by uh, certain uh, powers of the mind. But, but, the, but when you make immoderation a value instead of moderation, there's no end to it. There's no end to it. There's no point at which you can say, I've now got enough of this. I've got enough money. I've got enough pleasure. I've got enough uh, power. There's no limit. This is Machiavelli. Machiavelli starts all this by saying, you know, the Romans are right. Conquer the world. There's no point in stopping halfway. Keep going. Never stop. The Spartans, the Venetians were fundamentally misconceived because they thought, oh, we'll just get a nice bit of territory here and we'll sit back and we'll keep this. You'll get wiped out if you do that. Only if you conquer the whole world can you keep going. And, and, and that, Machiavelli is the first, as it were, to formulate this principle of, of immoderation. It's a complicated thing, the, the question about pleasure, because for people like Hobbes, um, pleasure takes, as it were, two forms. One is, uh, you know, I have a, a, a pleasurable sensation, but the other is I have money in my pocket and I think, Ooh, with that, I can buy a ticket to go to the cinema or I can buy a picture to put on my wall. And that becomes an imaginary pleasure before I've even spent it. And in that sense, Hobbes thinks that really the pleasures we have are mainly imaginary pleasures. And it's the imaginary pleasures that, as it were, don't escape from us all the time. The problem about um, 
buying things is there's no end to buying things. But you can, as it were, constantly fantasize about the pleasures you might have. Um, and in that sense, the miser who's accumulating money lives in a, a fantasy world in which he's got endless resources of pleasure, even if he, he never actually spends any of the money he's accumulated. So you get a very strange um, uh, internal puzzle about this notion of the pursuit of happiness, which is that it, it becomes impossible to distinguish what you might call real pleasures, material pleasures, sens sensory pleasures, from uh, entirely imaginary and fictional pleasures. Um, and when you read someone like Hume talking about the pleasure of doing philosophy, Hume talks about all the ways in which doing a philosophy is unpleasant because you, you find that you can't get the right answer and you struggle and you don't know what, how to get on and so on. But you then have the imaginary pleasure of thinking, oh, but if I just carry on like this one day, people will say, what a great philosopher he was. And it's that imaginary pleasure that carries you on, even when you're looking at the blank page and don't know what to write on it. So that the imaginary pleasures become in some ways more important than the real pleasures. But, but they also bring us uh, the suffering of the pursuit. In, in other words, they're unattainable. But yes. in our effort to attain them, we make ourselves miserable. I mean, that, that, that is why, at least in the United States, uh, so many of the people, I mean, we, we are the richest society ever known to the history of the, the known world. But, but there are enormous numbers of people that are very unhappy. Yes. Even people that have immense wealth are, are still unhappy. But, and partly because you can always look and see someone who's got more than you have. Uh, and think, oh, but I, I, and one of the things that, I mean, what the theory of economic growth that's built up in the 18th century is precisely how people are motivated by the attempt to be, uh, catch up with their neighbors. And my neighbor's got a carriage, I want the carriage. My neighbor's got kid gloves, I want kid gloves. Uh, my neighbor's got uh, uh, Chinese porcelain, I want Chinese porcelain. In that sense, there's a, that, there's, that's an endless, while in a, in a world in which you simply say, well, I'd like to become uh, Lord Mayor or something, you know, that you can get to be Lord Mayor and you think, well, now I've become Lord Mayor, that's it, I've managed it. And there is nowhere else to go to. But when you're pursuing material goods, there's no limit. But but the Christian virtues of, of moderation and, and restraint and thrift would de destroy our consumer society. Yes, and that's the great the paradox that Mandeville pursues in the fable of the bees. Mandeville says, if we became Christians and lived like Christians, we would destroy our consumer society. And so we must be grateful for the fact that we don't behave like Christians, that we're all greedy and, and grasping, because that's what makes us rich and prosperous and successful. Uh, that's the paradox of Mandeville's uh, fable of the bees, which is about how private vices lead to public benefits. And, and that's a paradox that I think all of these philosophers of the 18th century fundamentally accept. If we were uh, moderate and, uh, and uh, if we adopted an, a traditional concept of prudence, we would uh, undermine the very foundations of a commercial society. And so Adam Smith redefines prudence to mean those things that make you get ahead in the world. And that becomes what prudence is. Relate what your, the, this paradigm uh, the enlightenment paradigm of enlightened selfishness to capitalism. How do they, I mean, is that like the 
capitalism as being creative annihilation? Ah, yes. Um, I do think that that's what one of the things we're talking about here. And I do think that, that one of the things Adam Smith, I think, is reluctant to see is just how powerfully capitalism works to to annihilate as rapidly as it creates, as it were, or to create on top on the on the on the basis of constant annihilation. You go back to uh, Richard Kunstein or slightly before Smith. I think he understands that much more powerfully than Smith does. Um, but but that's right. What 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 this competitive world creates is a, a, a process of, of of destruction out of which construction is possible. Uh, you can only have uh, uh, some people getting rich if other companies are going bust. Um, there's there's no way in which everybody can succeed all the time within this system. Um, while in a, you know, in a more moderate world, uh, this is what a famous historian Edward Thompson called the, the replacement of the moral economy by, um, by the capitalist economy. In a moral economy, people look after their neighbors, they're concerned about the welfare of, of their, their community, uh, hold together, um, help each other build barns and so on, barn raising. Uh, in, in a cutthroat economy, that all that is disappears. Um, and, and one of the questions is, I mean, I think there's a, there's a, to some degree, we've created a world where what we've got is uh, conflicting commitments. On the one hand, we admire the notion of solidarity uh, in society. And on the other hand, we've created institutions and practices that constantly undermine it. On the one hand, many of us uh, believe in Christian principles. And on the other hand, we've created a culture and an economy which works on a profoundly different principles. So we've created internal conflicts and divisions. But the, as it were, the dominant framework within which our political and economic institutions have been formed is the framework provided by this Enlightenment paradigm. And, and it is what you call the Tinkerbell effect. I mean, how does that work? I mean, in other words, how do we get to the iron cage in, in which this fixed idea in which, the, although as individuals, we may object to it. I mean, we may, you know, pound our fists on the, on the bars and, and the romanticism or Marxism or religious revival, but, but to no effect. Yes, we do. And I think we all know there's something you see. I, I'm, I, I, the book is an expression of my own internal argument with myself, because on the one hand, I'm talking about the origins of egalitarianism, the origins of uh, a commitment to uh, freedom of trade, freedom of expression, uh, political freedoms, all of which I happen to believe in very strongly. But the intellectual foundations on which those institutions are built assume a view of hum human nature that I think is profoundly impoverishing and, 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 and misunderstands who we are. We're not simply pleasure-seeking machines. We're not simply profit maximizers. We're much more interesting and complicated people than that. So I, 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 the question is, for me is how could we preserve some aspect of these values while at the same time recognizing that the understanding of human nature that they grounded in is a misperception about what human nature is like. Um, and I think that's a, a profoundly difficult problem. 
Um, you asked about the Tinkerbell effect. The Tinkerbell effect is is the process in, in um, uh, the, oh, the, Peter Pan. Peter Pan, that's it. Yes. In Peter Pan, Tinkerbell is the fairy who uh, the, the children have to believe in. If the children stop believing in Tinkerbell, the, she dies. And it's only her belief, that their belief, that keeps her alive. Now, there's a sense in which there are all sorts of social institutions that only function because we believe in them. Think of paper money. Paper money replaces gold and silver. How does it replace gold and silver? Because people are prepared to imagine that it will work like gold and silver. Paper money has no inherent value. Gold and silver do, and you can take them to another society and their value will be recognized. Paper money loses value as soon as you, you cross from one state to another state, and yet you agree to treat it as if it's gold and silver. And as long as people buy into this fiction, it functions like gold and silver. The belief in it creates the social reality of money which paper money fulfills absolutely as successfully as gold and silver do. So in that sort of way, almost all our crucial institutions, I mean, this is what Hume wanted to argue. He wanted to say that it's opinion that makes political authority possible. And it's also opinion that makes paper money possible. It's opinion that makes uh, economic political stability possible. If people removed their belief in these things, they would cease to exist. Paper money would just become paper. So in that sense, we, what we think of as society and the institutions of society, to some degree, they have physical, you know, there are policemen on, uh, 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 cops on the, on the beach, on the, or in their cop cars or whatever. There are, there's, there, are, there is an army and a navy and an air force and so forth. But fundamentally, alongside that, and much more important than that, is our belief in the existence of money, political order, democracy, liberty, and so on. And if you took away the beliefs, immediately you crumble the very society which those beliefs are constituted by. So there's a, 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 a in part, the, uh, the iron cage in which we are trapped is in fact the cage of our own beliefs. We have constructed a world out of our beliefs, which in some ways serves us very well. It's created prosperity and in some ways serves us very badly. It's created a constant sense of discontent, a constant sense of inadequacy, a constant sense of competing but not succeeding. And in, in those ways, the world, we've created a world that's very cruel to us. Um, and, and, and what underpins that world, if you stop and look at it, is fundamentally our own belief that this is the world we ought to live in and the, that we have no way of escaping from. We end up, as you, you point out, that competing is not much of a goal and winning is not much of a garland, right? And the idea of a race is, is, is folly. Yes, Hobbes says life is a race uh, and winning is what matters. And, and this is just clearly not right. Uh, and in a sense, we all... You realize well, we, that that describes Trump. Well, I, I mean... I Trump, think is, Trump is, is, is enlightened selfishness raised to the power of 10. And winning is his only value. Winning is his only value. So lump, Trump is, as it were, one side of the enlightenment paradigm with the sympathy taken away with the sense that uh, uh, what benefits me can also benefit other people. It's much more, I must win at your expense, 
and uh, and I don't care what happens to you as long as I do well. So it's it's as it were a particularly coarse and crude version of the Enlightenment paradigm, but it's unquestionably a version of the Enlightenment paradigm. All right, is it last question? I maybe you already answered it. How do we escape the iron cage? Well, I think one of the things I, I would want to say, I think, is that the the world that was constructed by the Enlightenment, it depended upon the development of a capitalist commercial society. It's imbued by that. And it depended upon the growth of a print culture. It's a world of print communication, of newspapers, of magazines like The Spectator in the 18th century, and of books like Hume's, uh, Smith's Wealth of Nations. Now, we've moved out of the world of print culture into the world of digital culture. And um, in a world in which we move to rapid automation and to artificial intelligence, we may well move out of the world in which uh, competition for work and, uh, and employment become the fundamental characteristics of human behavior. So in that sense, I'm not sure that we have a choice about whether we're going to move out of the Enlightenment paradigm. I think in some ways, like it or not, we're going to be pushed out of it. The problem that we have, I think, is we don't know what we're going to emerge out of the Enlightenment paradigm into. And, and the question is, can we get some control of that process? And can we preserve some of the things that we value about the world we've been living in and at the same time create a world which reinvests our world with some of the things that the Greeks and Romans understood and some of the things that Christianity has always understood? Um, and in that sense, can we escape from uh, the, some of the negative qualities of the Enlightenment paradigm? Um, and I, so in that sense, I think we have to see the Enlightenment paradigm as having both positive and negative features. And the question is, in the new world that I believe the digital, uh, digi digital communication and artificial, artificial intelligence are going to create for us, whether we like it or not, can we in some sense... Uh, have some of the benefits of enlightenment values without some of the un unsatisfactory consequences of enlightenment values. Well, I I share your 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 hope and your your view, and I, I thank you, David Wooten, for speaking with us today about your new book, Power, Pleasure, and Profit. It's a truly wonderful book, and, and I am grateful for the chance to have read it. been a pleasure talking to you. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.